Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 34. I have the new vectors, Ejok. I see them. They don't look good. Pause, just let me work. He was right, of course, but explaining to him and anyone else listening to the Gunnery Channel that those vectors were only half the picture would have taken too long, and I enjoyed letting him fret. Engineering was ready to put on the speed, but we had to do a wide elliptical around Barlow and coast rather than push acceleration, or else we'd clear the horizon early and be in the boat's direct combat environment again. If we left orbit at the very last moment, we'd maybe delay a lock-on by their targeting sensors. It was worth a try, anyway. Your schedule is the only thing worth fighting for. That old merchanter axiom. Because we weren't the military. We weren't sworn to protect populations or strategic assets. We weren't out to win wars, destroy targets, or deny an enemy their resources. We were civilians going from point A to point B, as efficiently and safely as possible. Any deviation from that goal had a cost attached. Usually money, but sometimes much more. And this was one of those times. We had been close enough to the station in the Heliapa to watch the effects of Griselda's breakaway. Bin Ragenston and Sherry had unpinned the ship's cargo doors entirely, and, just as Aylareda gave the docking thrusters a tight burst, butted them hard with an anchored pneumatic hammer. The things just fell off the ship back into the bay. There was a flash in there from the explosive charge. Work lights in the dock cut off, followed by a single snap of fire, which spiked out into vac, consuming the oxytorch fuel from a burst canister. Windows below the bay, representing various other rooms, lost power, flickering spasmodically before the entire hub went dark. A lot of loose junk flew out of the charred cavern in the ship's wake. I didn't see any bodies, but if there were some, that was just too bad. The ship was in danger, and that justifies anything. This is Carmi, the captain called from the pilot seat of the Hiliapa to her own ship. Griselda looks good from over here. Is everyone okay? I had come forward once we were on approach to sit next to her in the co-pilot seat. I listened in, but had the good sense, for once, to stay out of the business of other experts. All departments report green, Aylareda replied. Ja, is good, Ben Roggenston put in, sounding cheerful in the chaos. But should all to be coming across now, Charita is standing by at hatch four. Talk me through the link-up process, Gasto. Easy, easy. Pitch over, uh, 3.7 degrees. 
in front and console there is square yellow button on top left, ja? Um, yes, I see it. When within 50 meters of airlock, press button. It is to ask for confirmation, and you press again. Bindragenstein has put adapter ring on with homing signals. Heliapa will detect and mate hatch to hatch automatic. They're scrambling the gunboat, put in Ira, who had been monitoring the high docks comm channels, now restored. Or they're trying to. AG and elevators are both off. It's a delay, but they'll be after us soon. Carmi moved the orbiter smoothly and with quiet professionalism. We came up along starboard side of the ship and pitched over at the prescribed angle. Then she pressed the yellow button that Ben Roggenston had remembered from another life. Once, then twice. The transport fired maneuvering thrusters in short puffs, and we eased in slowly, perfectly. I couldn't see much of anything on that side from my seat in the cockpit, and I didn't know how to bring up a video feed, so I just waited. The captain braced herself with absolute assurance, ready for a sharp bump and counter-bump as the transport settled in. But it was all delicate and beautiful. The adapter ring sat around hatch four, and we just sidled up silently. There were some dull clanks and hisses as a proper lock and pressure EQ were established, and then we were home. Carmi and I had unbuckled ourselves even before the link-up was done, then got Syndra ready too. The girl had never been under zero gravity before and squeaked in surprise and apprehension when she tried to stand, nearly bouncing off a bulkhead. After that, she just held onto my arm and cursed under her breath in low speak. In moments, we had a green light on the upper emergency hatch, and upon opening it, I found myself looking straight into Sherry's bright grin and dancing brown eyes. Welcome back. But her smile vanished when she saw the state of us. That had been 40 minutes before. Now I had powerful nerve blocks, anti-inflammatories, strong cross-spectrum antibiotics, and union-certified stimulants at work in my system. These were all courtesy of Ira's first aid locker. He was primary medico aboard with a high cert I was fully appreciating just then. I swallowed, inhaled, applied, and had applied each prescribed item, even as I sat in my closet, bringing up gunnery. I could already feel my mind sharpening and my ability to focus increasing as the seconds went by. Ira was called back to the bridge, so he left the medkit cleanup to Rena, who had been assisting. I thanked him as he ran up the companionway, and he called something friendly over his shoulder that I didn't quite catch. Rena, I said, switching gears suddenly, because that's how my mind was working at the moment. Kid gloves with that girl who came aboard with us, okay? She just lost her father. How awful. I'll see to her next. She's in the common room with those other strays. You're just a collector of lost souls, Ejuk. But I'm glad you didn't die. Right, the painting and cargo. She grinned and closed my door. Okay, the transport is clear of starboard, Carmi, now back on the bridge, announced over the command channel. I neither heard nor felt anything to imply we disengaged, Elareda displaying his arts. 
Great work, everyone, but stay alert. The fun out here is just beginning. I hoped she was wrong about that, but when I saw a blip appear at the transition point of Barlow's outer Atmo, I cursed her prescience. Someone's coming up to play, I announced, though they must have already seen it. The new bogey had a transponder signal corresponding to a high-end civilian air car, registered to someone with an imperial-sounding name. Perfectly normal for such a stolen vehicle. Well, this is just ridiculous, Carmi spat. They can't possibly catch us in that thing. They'll have all they can do just to make the high dock. Then that's their goal, I replied. Mr. Small and his friends can reach it in less than an hour. Odds on, they'll be welcomed aboard. Why would the rebels do that? He's got people in place back there. I thought his connections would have died with the old administrators, but he must have been bribing both sides. How else would he know to come up here now? That just sounds incredible. Maybe, I countered. But a week's wages says the gunboat dusts off with some familiar faces aboard. Within 15 minutes' time, the air car had transitioned to the station's vector. It was spinning in for a link-up with the hub, which telescopics showed to be bright and powered up again already, while Griselda had yet to even break from high orbit. Our clean getaway was starting to tarnish. I prepped gunnery to automatically assign the gunboat enemy status if and when it launched, and pushed it up to priority one for all telemetry updates. Twenty minutes later, Ira announced the thing we were waiting for and dreading to hear. Superior is undocking. I watched it on my system as well, with the See Here goggles. Clumsy, oversized, and hanging off my face, being all alone in a closet was handy for once because I knew I looked like a dork. Fifteen minutes later, sensors showed the gunboat fully underway. It pulled G's and increased orbit, just as expected, following an indirect intercept course on a tight parabola. We'd be out of sight of each other for a while. This reduced the likelihood of immediate attack, but we also couldn't see what they were up to, which was worrisome. If they spent some reaction mass over there, they could pop up on the horizon just about any place. 30 minutes until we clear high orbit on Vector. Aylareda announced. After that, we can put on some real speed. Anya, do you have a course plotted to the jump point? She said something that sounded affirmative. Great, thank you. Okay, Helm is standing by. A good ending to this would see us awake for hours and hours, the enemy falling steadily behind until it dropped out of attack range entirely. It would be a long, stressful vigil, but ultimately a peaceful one. Anything else might be shorter and very different in character. This is gunnery, I declared on the command channel after a final check of my figures. If they don't try anything cute, the gunboat will clear planetary horizon relative to us in 22 minutes. Griselda will still be in their attack range. Engineering should prep for Atmo recovery. We want to be at internal vac in case we're hit. Ja, Ben Rogenston agreed. Wait a second, Ejock, Aylareta began, but Carmi cut him off on the open channel, coming through speakers all over the ship. 
All hands, this is the captain. Prepare for induced vacuum conditions. Repeat, all hands prepare for zero atmosphere. Rena, get our passengers ready. We will hold off on pumping until you give us the word. We have roughly 20 minutes before Griselda might be fired upon. Speed and care, people. Speed and care. Captain out. Back in the command channel, Ailoreda started to question this order, which I found plainly shocking. Then the line went dead for a few seconds, but I heard shouting through the closet door from up the companionway. The iris valve to the bridge stood open as usual, and that made their energetic conversation a public one. In other circumstances, I'd have been gleeful over the guys dressing down, but Griselda had never seen action before, and he'd probably spoken out of reflex. From what I'd seen, most of the time, the owners pursued consensus, hammering out a logical course of action that satisfied everybody as best as possible. It was understandable, therefore, but still intolerable. We can't have this conversation right now, Carmi snapped at her first officer. I'd stepped out into the companionway in order to pull on a suit from the emergency locker down the way, and their voices echoed clearly from the bridge. I could imagine the two of them shouting as they got into their own pressure suits, while the other two in there wished they were somewhere else. Mind your station, Helm. Soon, all sections reported readiness over the open channel, including Rena, who had gotten her charges suited up and plugged into the emergency airlines in record time. The Sea Hears had a HUD adapter gadget, so you could strap them right onto your helmet. They'd then beam the display imagery onto your faceplate instead of directly into your eyes. It was one of their big selling points. I'd used them like that a few times in professional training facilities around Ainspace, but never in real life. Engineering gave us a countdown, then announced that air pumps had been engaged and Atmo was now being sucked into recovery tanks. I could hear no hissing or thumping from the bulkhead vents, but in just one minute's time, my suit showed a substantial drop in outside pressure. The ship's powerful air pumps had come from hull yet, too. Luckily, Griselda's emergency suits were light, flexible things. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to wedge myself back into my seat. They could connect to Atmo valves at most duty stations on the ship, though not in old broom closets, of course, and also had onboard supplies of their own, good for at least a day. I opted for the latter, having no choice, and grabbed an extra bottle. If we survived, I could think of one upgrade to request for my station right off. And, as thin as the suit was, sliding my chair back in place was difficult. I was essentially pinned there. It was uncomfortable, but I could work. This was good because one minute later, that red blip reappeared on the edge of Barlow's sphere in my HUD. The enemy is clear of the horizon, I announced. We're getting power down orders from both the boat and the high dock, Ira stated. Do you want to talk to them, Carmi? Nope. Let me know when they throw final warnings, though. That might give us a heads up. They sound pretty final already he replied. There was worry in his voice, in all their voices. Command, gunnery stands ready. Acknowledged, Carmi said, then added, how are you holding up? Living and loving the chemical lifestyle right now. You? 
I'd kill for a coffee, but my stewards can't be bothered. Ten lashes apiece, the lazy dogs, I suggested. Looks like Superior is kicking in some Delta V. Am I right? Check my numbers, someone. Anya confirmed with a mutter. I still hadn't spoken to her, for what that was worth, or even seen her since I'd gotten back, but it was heartwarming just to hear that unintelligible reply. It represented yet another personal situation I needed to sort out, but at this point, having even one of those problems to look forward to was encouraging. The term situational status, or S2, referred to any battle or potential battle one might find oneself in, real or simulated. The S2 in this case remained unchanged until the ship reached a proper vector that would allow it to pull G's on course. Four minutes after Superior arced over the silver-white horizon of Barlow, Carmi at last gave the order to open the throttle. Never had I imagined a merchanter could move like Griselda did then. Our inertial dampeners were excellent, quality hardware coupled with expert maintenance. But even so, there was a strong, uncomfortable pull every time the engine cycled through an acceleration sequence. I settled back as best I could. My small flight chair with the peeling upholstery proved to have a disturbing wobble each time the thrusters cycled. I thought I'd gotten over the relative absurdity of this gunnery station, but time away had helped me forget some of the less-than-fine details. No matter. It was the battlefield I found myself in, one at least partly of my own construction. I tracked those hull attack points I'd assigned to the gunboat back during our first approach to Barlow and tweaked them here and there to account for the current S2. These all looked good, but Superior was hardly toothless. Despite the distance Griselda was putting into the picture, which was a lot more than the other guys could have possibly been expecting, my sims showed that we'd be in practical range of their missiles for at least two more hours. This calc used the least optimistic probabilities by default, based on specs for a range of popular missile brands compatible with a Marcan gunboat stock weapon systems. If Superior carried different brands, though, or had had a launcher upgrade at some point, I couldn't predict the outcome at all. Um, it was Ira. His trailing off had a weird quality that I'm sure everyone picked up on. Carmi definitely did. What is it? Are they saying anything new? Um, it's, it's Mr. Small. He's on the gunboat. He claims to be commanding it. And we have a winner, I muttered sardonically, my mic open. Oh, I am so tempted to turn around and fight, Carmi stated, sounding like she meant it. But it doesn't matter. We stick to our course. He wants to talk, Ira said. I have nothing to say to that man. He wants to talk to Ejok, he clarified. <laughs> I'll bet he does. <laughs> Captain? She sighed and was quiet for a bit. Sparring with that snake isn't going to help us right now. Can you kill him at this very moment? Probably not. Then we let him stew. So we did. I've no doubt he kept trying, perhaps threatening and cajoling by turns, 
He wasn't the sort to take silence for an answer, and he certainly wasn't used to being ignored. Griselda traveled in its own silence for nearly another hour, channels like a ghost town, when wide-spec sensors picked up small heat sources on the Marcan that my algorithmic filters turned into flak gunfire. Despite all, I chortled goofily over the mic, then explained what was happening. Ben Roggenston, still lurking in the command channel from down in engineering, joined me in my mirth. Is idiots, he laughed. What's so funny about them shooting at us? Aylareta sputtered. Yeah, this is not good, Ira put in, his nerves over the tense hours having eaten away at his cheerful facade. Quit the chatter, Carmi commanded. Explain, guns. I pulled myself together and did my best. We're at least 12,000 kilometers beyond the effective range of their point defense weapons. We're accelerating faster than their bullets are traveling straight out of the muzzles, even on top of that boat's thrust. Those guns are only meant as an anti-missile system, kind of like our lanterns. It's a pathetic show of force. Are they trying to scare us into some sort of response? If he doesn't know us any better than that by now, Alan Small's a prize chump. Whatever he is, she countered, he's not stupid. That gave me pause, because she was right. They couldn't hit us. He knew it, we knew it. So what could be the point? Ira, is he still hailing? No, he's quiet now, except for the whole shooting at us thing. I watched the flak guns register on and off, on and off, but not at regular intervals. It just continued like this, over and over pointlessly, yet almost certainly not. Fully 40 minutes went by like this, with Superior falling further and further behind. I finally announced we were out of its effective missile range, and Carmi gave the order to reinstate breathable atmosphere. That took nearly a half hour on its own, but no one complained. Rena worked to get some frozen meals dispensed all around. I offered to help, temporarily switching gunnery to the backup program and my retinals, but I was surprisingly wobbly on my feet, almost falling over in the galley. She just told me to relax. I was in her way, mostly, but I snagged a powdered coffee and sipped what seemed like the best cup I had ever tasted. It was a moment that allowed for some reflection. I almost started thinking about Barlow, but I was able to refrain with some effort. I asked about the passengers. That Sindra seems angry all the time, she reported, which sounded like a good sign. The other ladies are doing well. Passenger cabins are free, so Carmi said no free stoops. They're happy about that. I would be too. I hate those things. I don't mind them so much, I put in. Then suddenly realized I was very nauseous from exhaustion or maybe all the meds. A full stomach sometimes helped with that, so I asked her to bring me some pseudo-meatloaf. I had to go back and sit down. I was still in the pressure suit, sans helmet, because I just couldn't be bothered fighting with it. In a few minutes, my fellow steward swung by with the meal, and I thanked her profusely. All the while, though, 
As I wandered about and chatted and returned, I watched the S2. On and off the guns fired, on and off, on and off. The others had begun some relaxed chatter of their own on various channels, with Candy, who was in her office down in Cargo, and hunkered behind a pressure door, clear of the main hold without its outer doors, asking everyone's opinion about when, where, how her department was going to get repaired. Sherry had to visually check on some manual toggles in an electronics panel amidships, which Ben Roggenston said he didn't trust. Replacing them required an entire electrical overhaul, and they'd never been able to afford it. She stood at my door for a minute. How are you holding up? How's the, uh... She asked, looking at my bandage and touching one of her own ears. Eh, there isn't enough left to cause any trouble, I replied dismissively, but with a hollow chuckle. In that moment, I felt like I'd joined a club that only Sten Mathers and myself belonged to. I could see she wanted to ask how it happened, but was willing to wait. After she left, I finished my meal and discarded the tray into a small trash box I'd fitted behind my sundry consoles, dripping gravy onto a dial. I wiped it off with some tissues, but it was still greasy. I switched back to my see-hears and studied readouts for a while, concentrating on nothing else, and thinking about nothing else, least of all about my pretty shipmate. Okay, so concentrating wasn't that easy, and I could feel the stims wearing down while the coffee had yet to kick in. I focused on the S2 after some real effort. Those continual thermal dots were bothersome. Superior fired away at nothing. The lion's share of a civilian gunboat's mass was actually in the ammunition, so these guys would have bullets to burn. Even so, no one would ever waste them like this. Whoa, Ira announced, but I saw it too. A graviton discharge. That's an exit cone, I commented. Very small. Jump drone, probably. It just left the system. Discharge origin is in the orbit of that dead buoy we mapped when we first arrived, Ira supplied. Guess it wasn't junk after all. What's this about? Carmi muttered. Significantly, Superior's gunfire had now ceased. It was a signal, I said at last, studying the sensor logs and the timestamp of the exit cone. The gunfire was a signal or code. They sent a message to an autonomous courier. You're saying they use their guns to send a message? Ailareta started. That's just preposterous. I have to agree, Ejok, Ira added. That doesn't make any sense. Why wouldn't they just send an encrypted radio signal? Explain, guns, Carmi echoed, though she didn't sound skeptical like the others. She sounded concerned. That junk was out there when we arrived, and probably long before then. Secret codes get changed and updated. If you were an operative who was out of the loop for a while, you might not be able to access your organization's secure comm system with your old codes. You'd need a backup method, something so obscure it could never be guessed by your enemies. A drone 
could detect and discern the pattern of those guns from the edge of the system. If it knew what to look for, any modern sensor system could. Jock is being right, Ben Ragenstein burst in then. Just looking at playback now. Ben Ragenstein is never seeing this done with guns before, but for sure, is code. Do you know what they were saying? No, was never job, but is definite military from over border. Private force of noblemen, maybe. Kryle Bacon was from noble space, I remarked. That piece of junk had to be a sleeper station loaded with a dispatch drone. I think Mr. Small just wrote a letter home. There was nothing new for a while. Carmi eventually ordered me to go lay down. She'd been deferential to my gunnery concerns, but eventually declared the ship as being kinda sorta in the clear. I set a bunch of alarms on my system anyway to buzz my wrist if any one of a rather long list of sensor-based criteria were met. I took a quick shower, the bandage for my ear was waterproof so I just left it alone, swapped the nerve block out for a fresh one, and crawled into my bunk. Yet I couldn't relax for a long time, regardless of my exhaustion. Barlow figured in. It was unreal to be away from the place. I was stunned to even consider that, but it was true. Cold. Snow. Dark grass. Filth. Machinery. Desperation. A frozen woman in the shadows. They all drifted by, paraded by, stumbled by. I wasn't sure after a while if I was remembering or dreaming or actually back there. A buzz flash combination brought me out of whatever that was with a start, and I shouted and thrashed in my bunk for a second. Huffing heavily, a gesture in the air brought up a sensor feed. Three graviton entrance cones appeared in my eye view from the edge of the system. Little ones with imperial signatures. I dug for a fresh flight suit from my floor drawer, while Carmi and the others up on the bridge talked back and forth nervously, speculatively. No one called for me, but Gunnery definitely did. I needed more stims, so I asked Ira. He thought it was a bad idea for me to be on my feet again so soon. I'd only been out for three hours. But he acceded after some argument. I think the latest traffic developments frightened him, and he actually wanted the ship's gunner ready and raring, regardless of health risks. We met at my closet, and he watched carefully as I took three hits from an inhalant bulb. No more. He told me I should return to bed as he walked away, sounding like he rather hoped I wouldn't. Up again? Carmi asked after I reported that gunnery was manned and readied. Eh, sleeping's for slackers. I don't slack. I'm the slackless wonder. She chortled kindly and asked me what I thought about the new arrivals. I did have a theory which had come to me on the bunk when I'd first seen them. 
it involved a theoretical group of criminal co-conspirators, confederates of the good generals from back home, standing by all this time waiting for the signal to pop in and help, his final backup plan. It had seemed pretty good in my head, but tripped and fell apart before I could open my mouth when one of the vessels upped and jumped out again. Graviton spike, exit cone, gone. That fast, that sudden. What in the world? The captain muttered. Oh, no. What is it, Ejok? What's wrong? I thought they were just part of his gang, but they have to be scouts. That one jumped back to report the all safe. I'm so stupid. I've studied this before. I don't understand. Studied what? Major ship movements. One minute passed. We were all silent on channels, waiting, waiting. Two minutes. I held my breath. Two minutes, forty seconds. Graviton spikes! Ira shouted. One, four, eight! They keep coming! I watched them on my end as he narrated. Automatically, gunnery ran pattern-matching algorithms on the entrance cones, and what I received back, though expected, filled me with dread. Eighteen ships. Twenty-seven. Forty. There were no exact matches for the cones in Griselda's database. Our records were dedicated to civilian-class vessels, while these were all coming back as Imperial military. They were over 50 light minutes out, so we had just under an hour before any announcements, challenges, or demands could arrive by radio or laser comm. But arrive, they surely would. A flotilla of warships. Like little flower patterns, or the bursts of fireworks over a city of the mad, the ships dropped in from jump space on the outer edge of the system. Their graviton sprays ejected from extra-dimensional exit cones and raced out ahead of light itself, caressing our passive sensors, tracing delicate shapes in the lenses of my goggles. By the time it finally tapered off, 67 points had emerged. Even then, every few seconds, smaller cones appeared and faded as courier ships ran back and forth from Command HQ in the flotilla's originating system, or even to far-off logistics centers in hidden corners of the Empire. Such communications were the very lifeblood of military bodies in space, and these restless little spikes would continue the entire time this particular one was in system. That could be a while because a flotilla had the resources and power to move right in and stay. It could reach out easily to destroy little ships that were causing any problems. It could do whatever it wanted, really, for whatever reason. And nobody sent such a force without a very good reason indeed. Captain? Yes, Ejok? Maybe I should talk to Mr. Small now. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. 
The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.